Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. I've had the privilege of meeting more and more friends of Back to the Bible Canada throughout this past year, and the one common denominator that I hear is their love for the Bible and their deep desire to understand the very real and relevant implications of the Word of God for their lives. Faith does come through hearing the Word of God, life-changing, eternity-changing faith, and that's why, well, we teach the Bible. If you're a supporter of this ministry, thank you. Or if you listen and this ministry has impacted your life, we're so blessed. But in either case, would you help us this June as we strive to reach our fiscal year-end goal? Your gift makes such a difference as together we teach the Bible. Call us today, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or visit the website at backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, for a message entitled Purpose and Destiny. Let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, I read an article in the journal Psychology Today caught my attention. The article was entitled, Who Am I? Let me quote a part of what that author said. He said, this question asked so often suggests that there actually is a plausible answer, almost as if our being is a fixed thing. And then the author goes on to say, there is an inverse correlation between the question being asked and the ease with which you experience life. See, he means to say that the more consumed you are with your own identity, that is, with answering the question of who you are, well, he says, the less likely you are to live life well. It's bad for your psychology, he says, to be asking who you are. So let me keep reading. Our identity should be seen as an ongoing process. Rather than a static snapshot, we should embrace a flowing sense of self whereby we're perpetually reframing, reorganizing, rethinking, and reconsidering ourselves. And so the author argues that the more we ask, who am I, the more fragile we become, unable to make changes and adapt to changes in life with enthusiasm. You know, there's a part of me that strongly agrees with that. You know, much of today's obsession with so-called self-discovery, it's just narcissism. People completely absorbed with self, people who, who just can't get away from a full-length mirror. People who are constantly asking others what they think of them and for whom all of life is spent in search of just one more compliment. See, the person who goes through life constantly asking, who am I? I mean, the real answer is, <laughs> you're an egocentric person. But there's another part of this article in Psychology Today that I think, well, frankly, it just misses the point. The author assumes that the question, who am I, is always and only a personal question. Now, for many people, that is true. If you ask a modern individual, who are you? He or she is probably going to describe, well, their personality, their accomplishments, their strengths and even weaknesses. I mean, all stuff about their individual identity. But if you asked an ancient Jew, who are you? He or she would give you a very different answer indeed. He would tell you his name. Then he would tell you the name of his father. Then the clan he belonged to, and then from which of the 12 tribes that clan came from. And finally, he would identify himself as of the people of Israel. You see, his identity was taken up in family, in community, and ultimately in his God. 
It's not as if he's constantly rethinking himself or, as the author of Psychology Today would say, reframing himself. No, he would encounter all new situations with his identity set, an identity that was rooted in the past, in in God's choosing of Abraham. He would have seen his place in the eternal promises of a God who had made promises to his people. See, that way of thinking is a worldview. The writer of Psychology Today, I think, might never have even considered that possibility. See, for Christians today, we we have rooted our self-identity, even if you're a Gentile, in the ancient history of Abraham. By Jesus Christ our Lord, we have been grafted into that vine. That's that's who we are. And, And the reason I bring all of this up is, as we're studying Revelation, it's because we come to chapter 10, in which we're going to meet a mighty angel who's given a little scroll, and he gives it to John, and who is told to eat it. And as strange as confusing as that image might be, there's embedded in that image a background of self-identity that I hope to show. But before we dive right into Revelation 10, let me tell you why that chapter is there. Revelation 6 is a drama in which we see Jesus breaking seven seals that bind up a scroll. That scroll is the scroll of destiny. It's, It's the scroll that contains the fulfillment of the purposes of God. We saw six seals being broken, and then just before the seventh seal is broken, the narrative is interrupted with two images. One's the image of the church on earth, and the second is the church successfully entered into the world to come before the throne of God, having victoriously conquered. It's as if John is telling us, before the Lamb breaks the seventh seal and God's wrath falls on the earth, let me just now stop the action and tell you the church is going to make it. She, she will not abandon her Savior. And then, of course, the seventh seal is broken. The scroll is open. And we enter into a time period the ancient prophets called the Day of the Lord. And now seven trumpets of judgment sound, and God begins to punish the human race for her sins. Six trumpets have sounded, and we might expect that when the seventh trumpet sounds, the entire human race will be brought before God's throne of judgment. But just like the breaking of the seven seals, before the seventh trumpet sounds, just like before, there's a break in the action. There's an interlude. There are, as before, some things that John needs us to understand before we go on. There are eternal truths that we must learn. There are lessons of faith that that we've got to incorporate. There, There are insights that we must gain. That's because the book of Revelation was never intended as just a timeline to tell us where we are on the prophetic calendar. Neither is it really about what life is like in the Great Tribulation, although the book really does contain a great deal of information about that. Revelation is written to a group of Christians who were suffering under the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. They didn't need a timeline as to when events were going to occur. What they needed to know was that there is a greater throne than the one that's in Rome. They they needed to know that God was in control. They needed to know of his mighty power to direct history and of the course of their lives. And they needed to know who they were. And throughout the book, they're being told. Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, has never taken his eyes off of them, his church, He's deeply involved in their lives. They are his church. Furthermore, the one who died for them is the same one who is moving all history to its goal. The one who is seated on the throne has been hearing their prayers as their prayers have been rising from the altar of incense. The one who is seated on the throne has ensured that their witness of the gospel will attract men and women from every tribe, tongue, and race. And furthermore, 
The one on the throne has placed his seal on their lives so that on the day when the angels sound the trumpets of God's judgment, he will safeguard them so that wrath will not fall on them. That's their identity. They're counted among the 12 tribes of Israel. Their identity is secure. The wrath of Domitian and the armies of Rome have no ability to change that. Their identity is set. And so as we come to the blowing of the seventh trumpet and what we would assume to be the end of the world, John, the author of Revelation, takes the church of Jesus to another interlude. I'm reading Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. In what is to come, chapter 10 is going to introduce us to not only this angel, but to the fact that he has a little scroll in his hand that John is told to eat. But let's take it one step at a time. In this, the second interlude of the book, we begin with a vision of an angel coming down from heaven. This angel, and by now we have seen many angels, but this one is called another mighty angel. There are in this book three angels that are called mighty. This one, back in chapter 5, verse 2, there is a strong angel who asks the question, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And then near the end of Revelation, in chapter 18, verse 21, a mighty angel takes a stone and throws it into the sea, symbolizing that Babylon will now be utterly destroyed. In each case, the mighty angel announces something major, either that the unfolding of God's plans are about to begin or that the world of evil is about to be destroyed. And so when we come to chapter 10, in which we come to an interlude, and by now we know that the interludes are intended to teach God's people theology. In the midst of the adventures of Revelation, the fact that we are greeted by another mighty angel tells us that something very significant is about to be revealed. In order to make the point, John tells us that this angel is wrapped in a cloud, a rainbow is above his head, his face is like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. At the outset, this almost makes it sound as if this angel is divine. After all, Psalm 104 verse 3 says that God is robed in a cloud and his face is like the sun. It reminds us of John's vision of Jesus back in chapter 1 where Jesus' face was like the sun shining in its full strength. But this is not Jesus. This is a mighty angel. But clearly the imagery surrounding this angel immediately signals us that this angel has come from the immediate presence of God. Some Bible teachers think that this must be either Michael or Gabriel because they find in Daniel chapter 12 that there is a description there that closely mirrors this one. But in any case, God is telling his church to listen up. You're not a persecuted minority in danger of being wiped out. You're the people of God, sealed by the living God, protected in the day of wrath, and God has something important for you to know. For this reason, he has dispatched one of his mightiest angels with a message just for you. The Back to the Bible Canada-Israel experience is scheduled to return May of 2018. Back by popular demand, we return to the promised land accompanied by Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David's City, the Jordan River, and an exclusive sailing on the Sea of Galilee that includes a time of Bible teaching 
and worship. And there'll be special evening events planned that will include a musical concert and evenings with Phil Calloway and Dr. John Newfeld. Every detail is worked out to maximize the most memorable Israel experience you can imagine. All the details can be found at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And we'll also be offering an optional Jordan extension for those that are interested. So register soon. John the Apostle has interrupted his narrative of the blowing of the trumpets, which signal the end of the world. It seems from the description of what we read that he is now back on earth. How he got from heaven to earth, well, we just don't know, but he sees a mighty angel coming down from heaven to the earth where he's standing. So let's continue to read Revelation 10, verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, we should not confuse the scroll that the angel is holding with the scroll that contains seven seals, the scroll that began the drama of the book of Revelation. We know that to be the case because in the original, in the Greek, the word for scroll that's found in chapter 5, verse 1, and the word for little scroll that's found in chapter 10, verse 2, well, it's a different word entirely. A modern equivalent would be a little booklet. This is not a major book of destiny. This is a specific message given directly to John but what's in the scroll? Given that John will be called upon to eat the scroll, we might assume that we're never going to know. But I think that what's in this scroll is covered in chapter 11. It's the story of the two witnesses. The angel is going to tell John about something that will happen to the people of God during the time of the blowing of the trumpets. In short, this angel comes holding in his hand a message to the church in the day of the Lord. The message in this scroll will deal with the future of God's people during the final days, right before the end of the world. And this is why this is so significant. God is sending his most powerful angel to help God's people prepare for the day of the Lord. Now, look again at the imagery. A powerful angel signaling that this is a moment of great significance, as significant as the breaking of the seals and as significant as the destruction of Babylon. The angel would be holding the scroll, the message from God to his church, holding it in his left hand. For later in verse 5, he will raise his right hand, and with the scroll in his left hand, he will swear an oath to God. Now then, with the message in his hand to the church, the angel sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Outside of the fact that this is a very large angel, we should see the significance here. This angel is so mighty that he has been granted authority by God over dry land and the oceans. As God's messenger, this angel is proclaiming that the earth belongs to the Lord. It's his possession. Again, let me stop here and consider what it means. In the last chapter, as God has been punishing the human race for their sins, we find the human race in adamant rebellion. They're not going to stop worshiping idols, and they're not going to give up their immorality. But this angel is staking out his turf, or on God's behalf, he's staking out God's turf. God, in fact, owns everything. People don't. And then in verse 3, we hear the angel calling out in a a voice that roars like a lion. Now, the literate Bible reader will immediately think of Amos chapter 3, verse 8. That said, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? 
The image of a powerful angel roaring with a voice of God with a message in his hand to the church, that's a powerful image. I wish we would hear this. The ruler of heaven and earth has a word for his church. Again, who is this church that such an angel would appear? And then, as the deep resonance of the angel's voice roars across the creation, we hear there's a response from the seven thunders. And that's surprising because I would have expected it to read seven thunders sounded rather than the seven thunders sounded. That's because when you put in the definite article the word the, the seven thunders, well, you'd expect that everyone reading Revelation should know who or what the seven thunders are. But we've never read about the seven thunders in Revelation. And so if you're like me, you might just be a little bit bewildered. I mean, what, what seven thunders? Did I, did I miss something as I read this? See, a great many Bible teachers have speculated that since this book is written to the seven churches, that John must have mentioned something to them in the past about the seven thunders. And they would have known what it was. It's just that we don't know today. Well, perhaps, but that still doesn't help us today. I find that in Psalm 29, David is describing the glory of God. And I'm going to read verses 3 to 9. It's a longer passage, but I think it's worthwhile to hear. The passage says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. See, in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord thunders and all of creation responds. See, when I read Revelation 10 and I read of the seven thunders, I'm reminded that the number seven, which speaks of completion, can as well represent the voice of God. If I understand Revelation 10 rightly, at the time of the blowing of the trumpets, God sends his powerful angel to his church, holding a message in his hand. And as that angel descends, he he demonstrates his authority over the creation and he roars out his commissioning from God. And then in the distance, the voice of God thunders back. I'm now reading Revelation 10 verse 4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So I guess we're never going to know what the seven thunders said. And that sounds strange again. It's because the book that we're studying is called the book of Revelation, not the book of concealing. Furthermore, from the very beginning of this book, way back in chapter 1, verse 19, John is told, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. So if you contrast the book of Revelation to the book of Daniel, let's say, in the end of Daniel, in chapter 12, verse 4, we read, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. So then what Daniel conceals in his book, the book of Revelation reveals in our day. I hope you see the difference here. But not in this individual passage. An angel has come with a message for the church, a message that the church must hear. And as the angel roars God's rulership of the world, the God of glory roars back. And whatever is said at that moment is not for our ears. Why? One of my favorite Bible verses for many years now has been Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
It simply says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so I guess whatever God has said was for John's benefit and for the, for the benefit of the angel, but it's, it's not for us. And so let me take you back to the picture. Before John describes the blowing of the seventh trumpet in the end of the world, he interrupts a narrative with a message from God to the church. God in whom are the mysteries that human beings are, some mysteries that human beings are not even faintly aware of. God whose authority over the created universe is undisputed. God whose justice over the actions of men and women bring judgment and the fulfillment of all of his purposes. This great and unapproachable God has broken the narrative of his judgment in order that he might communicate with us his church. Yes, his seemingly helpless and defenseless church. See, I come back to the question of our identity. Have you, if you're a follower of Jesus, ever wondered if you really matter? Does it seem to you that the actions of nations matter and of kings and of presidents and of prime ministers and chancellors and dictators and generals? I mean, those are the people of prominence. Caesar matters. Rome matters. It's the sweep of history, is it not? And if that's what you think, might I ask you again, who are you? Has it occurred to you that in directing the course of history, the God of infinite glory would at every moment in time interrupt his narrative that he might communicate with his church? And that's always been the church, the people of God, those chosen from the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, that this represents the full attention of the one whose glory is ineffable. Who are you, child of God? You're the one for whom God has created all things. You are the one purchased by the blood of Christ according to the covenant that God has made with Abraham in accordance with the purposes for which God created the universe. All of that has to do with being the special people of God. So stop asking who you are by looking into yourself. Start answering who you are by looking into the eternal plans of God described in his word and be profoundly moved and be filled with thanks. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have created us for yourself. And these little texts remind us how great you are and how privileged we are. In Jesus' name, amen. John, thanks so much for your message today. Uh, You know, at the very end, you really perked my curiosity uh, by talking about the things that we didn't know. It's interesting that we might be discomforted by not knowing what was said. And maybe, is that part of the point, uh, that we should be discomforted? Well, I don't think so. I think the point must be that there's more wisdom and there are more mysteries in God than we'll ever come to know. And recognizing that our God is far greater than we've ever been able to understand, that God has revealed himself to us, but he hasn't revealed all of himself to us. He's revealed everything that we need to know for our salvation and for loving him. But there is all of eternity to come to discover our God. So when God, who is eternal, whose purposes are beyond searching out, speaks to us, we need to stop and say, yeah, the God of infinite mystery has taken his time for me. And I think that's the whole point behind the text, that there would be things about this great eternal God that would so confound John and the reader as well. And yet here's the God who cares for us. Thanks so much, John. Well, join us again tomorrow for more of Back to the Bible Canada. 
where we teach the Bible. 